More Than a Movie is back with season two. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Listen to more than a movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleh Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters— with new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic Gymnastics, Cain Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's, Rappaport's Reality Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, including yours. Send them to OurAmericanStories.com. They're some of our favorites. Previously on our show, Mark Leapson told the story of the Battle of Baltimore and the writing of our national anthem. Today, Mark's back to tell the story of the Battle of Monocacy, the Civil War battle that was a Union loss and saved Washington, D.C. The July 9th, 1864 Battle of Monocacy is one of the most important little-known battles of the Civil War, mainly because it's known as the battle that saved Washington, D.C., because after which the Confederates attacked the nation's capital for the first and only time during the Civil War. It took place four miles south of Frederick, Maryland, about 45 miles west of Washington, D.C., this was a time when Lee was surrounded at Richmond and Petersburg by Grant following the bloodiest six weeks of the Civil War. 
Grant's Wilderness Campaign, a.k.a. the Overland Campaign, the last three huge battles of the Civil War, the Battles of Wilderness, Spotsylvania Courthouse, and Cold Harbor. These were mammoth battles that hundreds of thousands of troops took part in Wilderness, May 5th through the 7th. This is over 101,000 Union troops alone, 61,000 Confederates, 25,400 casualties killed, wounded, and taken prisoner. Followed by Spotsylvania Courthouse coming east toward Fredericksburg. Again, 100,000 Union troops, over 50,000 Confederate troops, 30,000 combined casualties. I mean, these were slaughters. As was the Battle of Cold Harbor right near Richmond, that dragged on for two weeks, May 31st to June 12th, about 17,000 casualties. And the other thing to keep in mind about this whole thing is hovering over it is the 1864 presidential election, the only presidential election ever held in a country during a fighting civil war, a democratic national election held during a fighting civil war. And of course, Lincoln was running for re-election and he was going against the Democrat General McClellan, the disgraced uh, Union general. It was not a great time for Lincoln. They didn't have Gallup polls then, but everybody knew it was going to be a really uphill struggle to get that victory in November. In fact, he almost didn't get the Republican nomination. He had to choose a Democrat that would be Andrew Johnson, senator of Tennessee, a Southern Democrat at that, to be his running mate because his Republican Party was divided. You know, war Republicans and peace Republicans were at odds. Lincoln was trying to navigate that. The Democrats, they were slightly divided, but they were united in their opposition to Lincoln. In the midst of all this, Robert E. Lee comes up with his bold four-part plan to thwart Grant's plan to end the war. Part one, to drive Union forces from out of the Shenandoah Valley. The Union had Shenandoah Valley, the Confederates' breadbasket. They were desperately needing food. They were desperately needing supplies to get through. Second, free the Confederate prisoners at Point Lookout POW camp, which was on the southern, it's still there today, On the south, it's a museum, on the southern tip of southern Maryland, not far from Washington, D.C., as the crow flies. Probably 12,000 Confederate prisoners held there. If they had been freed, that would have been the equivalent of a corps of troops for Robert E. Lee desperately needed. A third, to threaten Washington, D.C., if possible. And fourth, and most important in Lee's mind, was to force Grant to move those troops away from Richmond and Petersburg so that Lee could have some breathing room. So who did Robert E. Lee choose on this dangerous and important mission is Lieutenant General Jubal Anderson Early, who was one of the most colorful and controversial characters in the Civil War. He was a Virginian from Rocky Mount, Virginia. He went to West Point. He wasn't a great student, graduated at the bottom of his class just about, served briefly in the Seminole War, although nothing was going on when he got down to Florida. He served in the Mexican War, same thing. Fighting was over by the time he got out there. He was went back to Virginia, practiced law. He was a member of the Virginia Secession Convention actually voted against secession at first, but when the tide turned, he voted for a secession, and he was one of the most die-hard Confederates during the war and afterward. He was wounded at the Battle of Williamsburg in 62. He fought in every battle in the Eastern Theater. He was an aggressive general, although he did not judge terrain well. He did not judge... He wasn't a great tactician. He had a love-hate relationship with the men. He was very abrasive. 
didn't get along very well with the other officers. Uh, Robert E. Lee called him my bad old man, even though Lee was older than Early. Early had contracted arthritis and he was hunched over and he had a scraggly beard. And he was just a kind of a mean, cantankerous, you know, misogynistic, racist guy. Um, but he was aggressive, which is probably why Lee chose him, although he, you know, he didn't have much choice at that point in the war with what generals were available. So, on the early morning hours of June 13th, Early marched 8,000 Confederate troops away from Richmond and Petersburg. They snuck out. The Union troops did not have a clue that this happened. They marched 70 miles due west to Charlottesville. They got on rickety trains on June 17th. And on June 19th came the Battle of Lynchburg, which is even less well-known because there wasn't much of a battle because when the Union generals heard that Early was there with the Corps of Troops, they fled. And you're listening to Mark Leibson tell the story of the Battle of Monocacy, and it's the battle that saved Washington, D.C. More of the story here on Our American Stories. our American Stories, we bring you inspiring stories of history, sports, business, faith, and love. Stories from a great and beautiful country that need to be told. But we can't do it without you. Our stories are free to listen to, but they're not free to make. If you love our stories in America like we do, please go to OurAmericanStories.com and click the donate button. Give a little. Give a lot. Help us keep the great American stories coming. That's OurAmericanStories.com. And we're back with Mark Leapson here on Our American Stories and the story of the Battle of Monocacy, the little-known battle that saved Washington, D.C. When we last left off, Union troops were fleeing north from Confederate General Jubal Early in June of 1864. They went west. They went over the mountain into what is now West Virginia. That was led by General David Hunter, a.k.a. Black Dave Hunter, who was not one of the top Union generals. He had just finished what was known as Hunter's Raid up and down the valley, uh, the Shenandoah Valley, Stanton, Lexington, Natural Bridge, that, that area, Lynchburg. And he had, you know, was living off the land, which meant confiscating people's farm animals and crops and just up to general no good. And so he fled, and with him, one of Lee's goals was accomplished. The Union troops had left Shenandoah Valley, not to come back. Um, So then the Confederate troops, they started their march up north, which we call going down the valley, 
because how the Shenandoah flows. So in other words, when you go north, you're going down the valley because of the way the Shenandoah flows. The last Union general in their way was General Franz Siegel, who again was not one of the great Union generals. In fact, he was probably one of the worst. He had he was a political general. He was German. He came here with no battlefield experience. Lincoln was trying to influence German Americans and Germans to come on the on the Union side, and that was the reason Siegel got this command. And you know, his low point came during the Battle of Newmarket. Uh, earlier that spring when his superior forces were routed by Confederate troops there in the Shenandoah Valley, aided by cadets from Virginia Military Institute, some as young as 15 years old. So Siegel fled. He went way up into Maryland to the uh, Maryland Heights over at Harper's Ferry, West Virginia, right across the river. Uh, Early and his men, uh, you know, marched. You know, it was very hot that summer. Um, about a third of the men did not have shoes, uh, but they kept going. And when Early got to cross the Potomac River, this was the third time that the Confederates had, if you want to call it that way, invaded the North. The first time being for the Battle of Antietam in 62 and the second time in 63 for Gettysburg. Everybody heard of that, but not very many people know about uh, this third uh, move into the North. And they camp for two days outside uh, Antietam, which is not far from Harper's Ferry, where they rested. Also, that's when Early got the order from Rob Lee, Robert E. Lee's son. They sent him on horseback. They didn't want to put this order uh, out on the telegraph. They sent him on horseback up from Richmond, and he delivered this important, crucial order to go after those imprisoned Confederates at Point Lookout if they could. So let's back up just a quick minute and talk about Washington, D.C. at this point in the war. You know, you think about it, Washington is just, you know, across the Potomac River from Virginia. It was 90 miles. It is 90 miles from Richmond, the capital of the Confederacy. So especially after the first Battle of Manassas in the summer of 61, people were worried about a Confederate invasion of the national capital. So soon after that, the Union Army went around, went, went and built the what was known as the Defenses of Washington. When they finished, which was this time in the Civil War, there were something like 68 forts surrounding Washington, D.C. And of course, they went into Virginia because the Union took over Northern Virginia soon after the war started. Now, these were defensive forts. They weren't extensive, but they they did bristle with artillery. They were out-facing, and the forts were basically all tied together by a series of berms and embankments. There's only one fort left today that you can see, and that's Fort Stevens, which is, if you think of Washington, D.C. as shaped like a diamond, it's at the very tip of the diamond near Silver Spring, Maryland, and it's a national park now. I mean, the fort has been rebuilt, but you can see what they were like if you go there. They had cannons facing out, of course. Uh, Inside, it was like a horseshoe, and the forts were designed to be manned by about 50 to 60,000 troops. But at this point in the war... There weren't a lot of spare, able-bodied Union troops. I mean, Washington, D.C. was kind of like a hospital during the war. Hospital, you know, schools, government buildings were turned into hospitals, men recovering from these vicious battles that had kept accumulating. And so 
We don't know how many people were defending Washington at this time, but we think it was maybe around 10,000, if that. And not only that, but most of them were members of what was known as the Veteran Reserve Corps. Now, the Veteran Reserve Corps had recently changed its name in 1864. It had been known as the Invalid Corps. The Invalid Corps were men who were recuperating from their wounds, but well enough to, you know, walk and man the barricades. So we had about 10,000 invalids defending Washington, D.C. at this point in the war. And we had Jubal Early on the march. So they crossed the Potomac, like I said, on July 5th. This was actually the first time the Union intelligence realized that Lee had just sent an entire corps of troops away from Richmond. They started moving toward Washington, D.C. Now, word is getting back to Washington now that Lee has sent a corps of troops out there. And the Union intelligence, which was not great in general during the war, was not good here either. At first, the reports said it was General Ewell, who was in the hospital at the time. It was actually early. And they kept getting the numbers wrong. You know, 20,000 was mentioned. 25,000 was mentioned. Grant heard about it. He saw the these dispatches, and he figured out what Lee was up to, and he decided he wasn't going to send any troops. He had his plan in place, and that's what he was going to do. But one Union Army general did figure it out and did take action, and that is Lew Wallace, another colorful character who later became famous as a novelist. You know, he wrote the second best-selling novel of the 19th century, Ben-Hur, He wasn't a military man, although he did form a local militia unit, but it was a Zouave unit. Those were the Zouaves were guys who dressed up in these um, interesting uniforms that, with pantaloons and vests and mostly did close order drill. They were very popular, but they certainly didn't have any battlefield experience. Um, so Lou Wallace started his own regiment when the war started. He uh, quickly rose in the ranks as he had success in an early battle in Romney, West Virginia, when the Union press was looking for heroes, and they played him up. And then he also fought very well in February 62 at the battles of Forts Henry, Hyman, and Donaldson out there in Tennessee. And he was promoted to Major General at 34, one of the youngest Union generals. His low point came at the Battle of Shiloh, April 6, 7, 1862, when he managed to get his men lost in the woods before the first they missed the first day Grant was commanding as was General Halleck and Henry Halleck and they both were not very happy with Wallace and they relieved him of his command he was out of the war for two years he begged to get back in he finally was but he got a terrible assignment he was in March of 64 he was appointed commander of the 8th Army Corps of the middle department basically he was military governor of Baltimore which was kind of a hotbed of a Confederate sentiment, but it wasn't anything like what he wanted. He was itching to get back in the fight. So without orders, on his own, on July 3rd, Wallace started gathering up troops to send down to Monocacy Junction, which is four miles south of Frederick, Maryland. And he arrived on July 5th. At the end of the day, July 6th, all the troops he could muster, who were mostly 100 days men who hadn't had any experience in battle, one gun, one piece of artillery, and he had about 1,500 men. And you're listening to Mark Leibson tell the story of the Battle of Monocacy 
And by the way, picture in your mind Richmond being the capital, Montgomery also a capital in the Confederacy, and Richmond and D.C., two capitals of opposing armies within about a two-hour drive, if you know that area of the country. So they're right next to each other, these two capitals. And here is Lee trying to strike at our current nation's capital, Washington, D.C. The story of the Battle of Monocacy continues here on Our American Stories. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. So I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals, Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jack Armstrong. He's Joe Getty. We're the Armstrong and Getty Show. We cover the stories the mainstream media ignores. The stories that are important to your life and important to the world. The election, of course. The many trials of Donald Trump. Couple of wars. Gender-bending madness. Why are kids looking at so much social media? And we bring you the stories the mainstream media is on, but we do it without the left-wing media spin. Listen to Armstrong and Getty On Demand on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Armstrong and Getty Show to start listening. 
I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. And recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rock the baby to sleep and slam dunk. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back with the final portion of Mark Leapson's retelling of the 1864 Battle of Monocacy here on Our American Stories. It's also known as the Battle to Save Washington, D.C. We return to Mark Leapson and the Union General Lew Wallace. At the end of the day, July 6th, all the troops he could muster, who were mostly hundred days men who hadn't had any experience in battle, one a gun, one piece of artillery, and he had about 1,500 men. Meanwhile, Early had picked up more troops. He's got about 14,000 men, and he's bearing down on Monocacy. So, uh, finally, uh, Grant finally relents when he hears when all this word gets to him, and he releases the Sixth Corps from uh, City Point outside of Richmond. They get on. They wake him up early in the morning. They get on ships. They go down the James River, out into the Chesapeake, and up up to Baltimore. They get on trains at um, the old Camden Station, and they arrive there on early afternoon, July 7th. Trains left at 4 o'clock. They arrive the next dawn the next day at Frederick Junction, and now Wallace has about 6,500 troops. Again, he's over 2 to 1 outmanned, but he at least has 6,500. He has one gun. The Confederates have something like 24 guns. So it's inevitable that the Confederates are going to win this. But Wallace puts up a full day fight. One of the Confederate commanders was John Brown Gordon, who you know had fought in every battle in the Eastern Theater, was wounded five times at Antietam. He said that later that Monocacy was the sharpest fight he was in. The first shots were fired at 6 a.m. Saturday, July 9th. Those three artillery battalions really uh, won the day for the Southerners, and Wallace was forced to retreat at about 4 o'clock in the afternoon. So this little-known battle, no, it wasn't Antietam, it wasn't wilderness, but we did have about 1,300 Union casualties, killed, wounded, taken prisoner, and about 800 Confederates. So some people call this a skirmish, but, you know, it was a battle. The river ran red with blood, and I know that people say that other battles, but in this case it was true because a lot of the fighting took place right on both sides of the river. The Confederates won. When Halleck and Grant found out what happened, they relieved Wallace of his command, 
although he was soon reinstated early, and the troops spent the night on the battlefield at July 9th, and then the next morning they marched east toward Washington, D.C. He sent his cavalry north toward Baltimore for two reasons. One, a feint to make people believe that he was going to Baltimore rather than Washington, and two, to cut the railroad and telegraph lines, which he did. So Washington was incommunicado. Last day they heard early was either on his way to Baltimore or Washington, probably Washington, and there was panic in the streets. The Navy Secretary Gideon Wells wrote in his diary, the rebels are upon us. They readied a ship, they provisioned a ship in the Potomac to spirit Lincoln out of town if this invasion of the city should take place and be successful. And Lincoln did not know about it, and when he found out about it, he was angry. But still, it wouldn't have helped Lincoln very much uh, in his election campaign if he had had to flee Washington, D.C., There was also the U.S. Treasury to be raided, desperately needed Confederate supplies to be looted, possibly burning Washington if those Confederate troops got loose in the streets. And it certainly would have had an impact on the election. So what happened? A call went out for all able-bodied men to get to the barricades. And so we had civilians, government workers uh, on the battle, you know, came up to those forts, those defensive forts, and to to help the Invalid Corps defend Washington against all these seasoned troops. Again, finally, uh, at the last minute, Grant relented down in Petersburg, and he sent the rest of the Sixth Corps up to Washington. And again, they did the same thing. They got on ships, they went down the James River, but this time they came up the Potomac. They landed at the docks downtown Washington, D.C., about noontime on July 11th, and they went up to Fort Stevens, uh, which was the northernmost part of Washington, D.C. The citizens were gleeful. They greeted them with ice cream and sandwiches. So on July 11th, Early was one of those generals who was on his horse with the men right out in front of the troops. And they arrived outside Fort Stevens. And, you know, from his, uh, from his horse with his binoculars, he could see the Capitol Dome. He had it in his sights. You know, the the South's most aggressive generals had the Capitol Dome in his sights, and he could have given the order to attack, but he didn't, and for several reasons. One, he didn't have very many troops. He had to leave troops back on the battlefield to take care of the wounded and the prisoners, and the men were all strung out, you know, between Frederick and Washington. He only had the lead elements of his troops. And also, it was really, really hot. And they had been on the march now. It's July 11th since June 13th. And, you know, there were wool uniforms. They had to have been exhausted. Now, the men wanted to go, but Early decided not to. However, being Jubal Early and he had his artillery, there was skirmishing. There was artillery going back and forth. And that night, Early took his generals for a council of war into Silver Spring at the Blair Mansion owned by the prominent Blair family. And the Blairs had had fled. They had gone to Pennsylvania. And Early and his generals had this council of war. They raided the Blair's wine cellar. And they decided that they would decide what they would do the next morning on July 12th. So Early goes back early in the morning of July 12th. He looks up in front of him and he sees six Corps troops on the parapet at Fort Stevens. They had a distinctive uh, cross as their regimental or as their corps cross and so he knew he was facing experienced troops he had thought he might be facing these you know invalids and so again there was 
skirmishing and fighting. And, you know, famously, Abraham Lincoln and some of the citizens of Washington came out. Lincoln came out, was standing on the parapet at Fort Stevens, all six feet, five of them in a stovepipe hat. When a Union surgeon standing next to him was shot and wounded by a Confederate sharpshooter in the trees pretty far away, at which point Lincoln was urged to get down from the barricade. So there's two days of skirmishing, about 300 Union dead and wounded. We don't know how many Confederates, but it was probably in that ballpark. It never made the official records of the Civil War. July 13th, Early snuck out of Washington, retreated back through Montgomery County, Silver Spring, to Poolsville, Maryland, and then crossed the Potomac River at White's Ferry and came back into Virginia. So uh, did Monocacy save Washington, D.C.? You know, I think it did. Grant writes in his memoirs that had Lew Wallace not held up early for most of one day and, you know, probably two days because they rested on the battlefield the next day, that he, Grant, would not have had time to get the Sixth Corps up to Washington, D.C. What impact did it have on the 64 presidential election? Well, we know that Lincoln won. We also know that he was at a very, very, very low point. You know, he wrote a letter to his cabinet, said not to be unsealed until after the election. And the letter said, please cooperate with the new administration. He didn't think he was going to win, but he did. And one of the reasons had to have been that Washington, D.C. escaped the Confederate attack. There are other factors. Believe me, there were. Certainly, what happened at Monocacy had a strong impact on the presidential election. And a special thanks to Robbie Davis for the production on that piece and the storytelling, and also a special thanks to Mark Leibson, his book, The Desperate Engagement, How a Little-Known Civil War Battle saved Washington, D.C., and changed American history. And there is no doubt if Washington, D.C. had been sacked, it would have been a death blow to the Lincoln presidency. And that's what, indeed, Gettysburg was all about, getting that big victory to harm Lincoln's chances of getting reelected in 1864 and the Union calling it quits in the greatest war of our country's history, actually perhaps more consequential even than the American Revolution the story of the Battle of Monocacy here on Our American Stories. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. China and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. 
In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rock the baby to sleep and slam dunk. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jack Armstrong. He's Joe Getty. We're the Armstrong and Getty Show. We cover the stories the mainstream media ignores. Stories that are important to your life and important to the world. The election, of course. The many trials of Donald Trump. Couple of wars. Gender-bending madness. Why are kids looking at so much social media? And we bring you the stories the mainstream media is on. But we do it without the left-wing media spin. Listen to Armstrong and Getty On Demand on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Armstrong and Getty Show to start listening. And we continue with our American stories. And as you know, we tell stories about everything here. And this one is a military family story. And you're going to hear right now from Mike McDaniel, a retired U.S. Navy captain himself. He shares with us a few defining moments of his life from way back when, when he was just a little boy, growing up as the son of a naval aviator deployed in Vietnam. We grew up as a Navy family. We had many gatherings where the families would get together, the wives and the children, so we kind of a community within the aviation squadrons. And I remember one day, I can remember it like it was yesterday, May 19th, 
was a beautiful day outside. Friday afternoon, happy-go-lucky third grade kid, walking home from school. Couldn't wait to get home, spend the weekend playing with my buddies in the neighborhood. And as I approached the house, I noticed there were about a dozen cars in the driveway and along the street. And again, not atypical for a, for a Navy family because they get together, so I didn't think anything out of it. So I went in the house, and as soon as I walked in the house, uh, Mrs. Miles, who was a wife of another squatter mate of my dad's, uh, came up and she says, you're going to come home with me for the weekend and spend the night and, with Gary and Larry. They were her sons that were kind of two of my good friends. Oh, okay, so I didn't really have anything planned, but it sounded okay. So uh, we uh, got in her car, and on the way to her house, we stopped at a Highs ice cream store. High's ice cream stores at that time were like candy heaven for a kid. You could get ice cream, multi-flavors, and they had these candy racks. You can remember they were like, you know, they were huge as, as I remember them as a kid. And she said to me, Michael, get whatever you want as much as you want. Red flag, something, something's not right here, but hey, what a great opportunity. So I remember going up to the candy rack and just stuffing my arms and glancing over her every once in a while to see if I kind of was reaching the threshold. And she just was like, you know, go up for it. So literally, as much as I could carry, I took up to the counter. The next morning, she brought me back. And I remember they used to have these big bubblegum sticks back when we were kids. They were called Big Buddies. And there were these long things of bubblegum. And I remember about five minutes out from the house, I tore that thing open. I stuffed that whole thing in my mouth. And uh, she got, let me out, say goodbye, so I walked in the house, and my mom met me at the door, and she said, let's go back to your room, I need to tell you something. So we walked back to my bedroom, and she said, let me hold your bubble gum, because what I'm gonna tell you is gonna make you cry. And then she said that my dad had been shot down the previous day over Vietnam, and was currently in the jungle of North Vietnam, and they were gonna hopefully rescue him later that day. And that was the last thing we heard for the next three years. So for those first three years of his six year time away, we didn't know if he was dead or alive. And I remember my dad telling me, and one of the last things he said to me was, take care of the family while I'm gone. So here we were, I was in the third grade. My brother was two years younger and my sister was only four. And uh, at the time the Navy had told my mother for us not to tell anybody that he had been shot down, family or friends. And I was just like, how do you do that? How do you go without a father and do this? I remember wanting to think he was okay, but not wanting to think he was okay if he really wasn't. So that was kind of a balance, tough thing to, to, to think through as a young, young boy. It was three years later, and it was the day of the solar eclipse in Virginia Beach. I remember the full solar eclipse of the sun, which is kind of a big deal. And I had a little league um, basketball championship game. And I was a pretty decent basketball player back then. And I was spending the night with Petey Bowerman, whose dad was our coach. We had the early game. It was like an 8.30 game. And it was a championship game. Mrs. Bowerman or one of them came in the room and you know we were just waking up. And she says, Michael, your mother's on the phone. I remember these words too, she said, Michael have some wonderful news. And up until that point, anytime she had said that, I thought something about dad, something about dad. But it would be something like, the grandparents are coming to town for the weekend, or we're going somewhere. 
It was like a letdown. And this time I remember vividly thinking, the grandparents are coming to town for the weekend. And she says, a list came out today. The North Vietnamese released a list of 14 names of men being held officially as POWs and your dad's names on it. We know he's alive. And it was like the weight of the world came off my shoulders. I went to the basketball game and I normally scored about 10, 12 points. And I think I made a score two. I could really care less what happened with the game. And then the reality set in, okay, he's alive. Now what? Well, let's get this war over with and let's get him home. That was a very tumultuous time of the war. Now I understand it better, you know, because of the history of it, but Ho Chi Minh had died. So a lot, of, a lot of changes were taking place in Vietnam, but the streets were wild with protesters and the, uh, the anti-war movement. And it was just like everything was spinning out of control. And here's your dad languishing in a prison somewhere. Okay, then let me fast forward to when we found he was coming home. The ceasefire had taken place in the Paris peace talks where they were, they were negotiating. And then they announced they were going to release the first wave of POWs that were there the longest. And my dad was going to be part of the second wave of prisoners to come home. Well, the first wave came home, and that was such a joyous occasion. I can remember Jeremiah Denton walking off the plane and doing his God Bless America. It was just wonderful. And, and you knew my dad was going to be in that next wave of those that were released. And then the, the peace treaty broke down. And so they delayed the release. It was like a bad dream. It's just a horrible feeling. Then they, they finally did have the release date. But something else had happened. Because of the first wave that came out and started getting their debriefings, because they started that right away, they found out about what my dad had gone through in 1969. There was an escape attempt. The Navy psychologists came and sat down with us as children and told us, your dad went through a real rough go. There was some real severe torture. We're not sure what kind of shape he's going to be in mentally. And that scared me to death as a kid. And I, I guess I appreciate them trying to prepare us, but that's not something you say to a 15-year-old and a 13-year-old and a 10-year-old. I, I remember being horrified by what, what, what now? What else is coming? So they take off from Hanoi, and we know he's on his way to the Philippines. And this is before internet, this is before cable television just network television at the time. The plane was going to land in Clark Air Force Base in the Philippines, like at four in the morning, our time on the East Coast. So my mom comes in to each of our bedrooms while we're asleep before she wakes us up and takes a Polaroid picture of us sleeping before she wakes us up. I think I'm laying there with my dog with my mouth wide open or something. So she wakes us up as we all gather around the television. And my mom, she's on the floor on her knees in front of the television. And you see this plane land, and then it taxis up to the tarmac. And they bring the ladder up, they open the door, and the POWs start coming out one by one. And you see this guy, you could tell he was tall, and he's there, and all you see is from about the chest down, and he's adjusting his belt line. We call it a gig line in the Navy. You can make sure your, your shirt is lined up with your pants, trousers, and your belt buckle. It's just a Navy thing, I think, you know. And you just knew it was him. And my mom dissolves into tears on the floor. I mean, she's just on the floor, just sobbing. And we're like, Mom, not now. Not now, you gotta watch this. So she never saw it. She saw, had to see it on the reruns the next day. Then he walks down the ladder. There he is, as large as life, your dad getting on free soil. You know, that was so cool. 
so then let me go back to the, the time where they're supposed to come into Norfolk, Naval Air Station Norfolk. And there were like thousands, probably 10,000 people that had come to the airfield to watch this, watch these men come home. They were going to fly to Travis Air Force Base, then to Naval Air Station Norfolk. But it got fogged in. And again, it's like, what next? You know, it was like one more thing that was delaying it. So what they did, they ended up flying into Oceana and then driving from there to the hospital in Portsmouth where they were going to be. So the crowd never saw all that, but they transferred us to the hospital. This black sedan drives up into the conclave of the hospital. And the door opens and out pops this guy in this Navy khaki, full dress uniform, who you've been waiting for for seven years because he was almost at, towards the end of a year long deployment. Large as life, looking so sharp, even though he's pretty skinny. But he just rushes to the family, hugs my mom first, then picks up my sister in his arms, and they all kind of gather around, and he says a few words, and it, it was like, yes, we're there, yes. And you're hearing a grown man recalling a really tough time in his life, almost breaking down and crying. And again, that was Mike McDaniel, a retired U.S. Navy captain, and his dad, Captain Eugene Red McDaniel, who flew A-6s in Vietnam, shot down on his 81st combat mission. What a great story. Mike McDaniel's story, his dad's story, here on Our American Stories. More Than a Movie is back with Season 2. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie. Because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Listen to More Than a Movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin, And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take DC. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals, 
Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's, Rappaport's Reality, Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts.